I'm here with John, and today we're going to discuss uh, the Taylor's notion of the secular age, tie it in a little bit with John Milbank, and then discuss Robert Doran's, uh, that all of this fits a bit with uh, the, the work of Robert Doran and, and Rene Girard. But where we've been a little bit, now John, as I say this, uh, correct me or, or, or add, but uh, you know, that Taylor gives us three notions of the secular, and of course the, the kind of the simplistic notion is the secular is the separation between the religious and religion becomes privatized and the public sphere uh, is emptied of the religious. And then the second realm is that the uh, secular is actually the idea in which faith in God uh, becomes a difficulty, or in fact, for many people, not a lived possibility. And I don't think that it's either of those that he's focused on, but his interest is in the third area, and that is that it's actually faith itself that uh, becomes a different sort of category that actually, and I think this is the one that as Christians should most concern us, that that religion and what it takes to believe uh, becomes secularized in a kind of uh, you know invisible or in, implicit way, and so that uh, Christianity as we have it uh, is in fact uh, uh, playing into a kind of secular understanding. Now, have I said that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, a way of giving just a very quick. A rundown of what Taylor is marking historically is that he has uh, three secularities. So um, secularity one is um, where you would begin, and that is the about the time of the Reformation, the conditions for belief begin to change. And then secularity two is during the time period of the Enlightenment, and uh, later, and we begin to see historically a decline of both belief and practice. And then secularity three um, is an evacuation of the sacred from public space. And so, you know, depending on how you're defining all these terms, it's not it's not as if that we're trying to say. Uh, religiosity or people doing things religious or people even having a type of faith in things that makes them function morally and ethically has ceased because it hasn't. It's really devolved into a type of scientism. But Taylor is specifically talking about religious belief as we would think of it uh, pertaining to world religions and, of course, for him, especially Christianity. And, of course, the idea is here that the secular plays itself out uh, you know, differently in in uh, Europe and uh, America and Canada, and he he finds the United States particularly uh, unusual in that. Uh, and and his point is well made that that in the United States, you, it's the secular doesn't mean that there's a decrease in religious practice or people going to church, but secularization, as he's running it down. Just means that the parameters or the uh, the what it takes to believe has become uh, something different. Yes, yeah. So, and especially all of this revolves for Taylor as he's introducing this idea around belief in God. 
So he makes the statement kind of offhandedly that in the year 1500, it would have been impossible not to believe in God. Whereas in the year 2000, it's impossible to believe in God without even being aware of the fact that you may not believe in God. So disbelief is as common as belief once was. So that we've passed from a period in in which uh, belief, in the sense of a world, a cosmos, as you as we've referred to mm-hmm. it as a synthesis, the world held together. And yeah, that, and I th- yeah, yeah. I was going to say I think that's key. Is that um, you know before he begins to track the secular age, he is talking about the world in terms of a cosmos as an ordered whole with God as creator, humans as inhabitants in that creation, and creation having an intelligibility based upon the fact that God is creator. And um, that all comes apart. And so it's not that people stop believing in things, as you've so uh, aptly put already, or it's not necessarily that people don't have faith anymore. It's just not a faith in that cosmos that once ordered everything. And Taylor is, uh, I, I, as so far, I mean, he himself, I think, is a is a practicing Catholic. But his concern, at least as, uh, in the secular age and in his work, is primarily descriptive. He's saying, well, this is the way it is. And he's not saying, oh, it's too bad that we've lost the medieval. And, and I must say that in them saying this, that sometimes people accuse Milbank and the RO guys of, in some way, longing for a return. I think that's probably, I, I would hope that's a mistaken understanding. But I think with Taylor, you get the, the reality. No, what this thing is, is it, it, it is just where we are and what it will mean for an authentic Christianity uh, uh, to continue will be to take account of the modern world as we have it. Yeah, I think so. And so that, um, you know, tracing this is already such an important work because uh, as the radical orthodoxy guys uh, and ladies will point out that people have quit just thinking of needing to secularize parts of reality and have become full-blown secularists thinking this is the way that it always has been and it was simply those Christians or those religious people who were deluded and thankfully we've gotten past all that nonsense or superstition to something that's better. And so in this there's just that implicit belief in sort of a a modernistic progress that knowledge and the quality of life and ethics are always advancing. And Taylor's able to point out that, no, that's not really what's happening at all. It's really just a change in the way humans perceive the world and perceive themselves in the world. And um, whereas Taylor is mostly describing that, what you get in radical orthodoxy is more of a critique. And before we describe, in other words, what the radical orthodoxy, maybe it'd be good to just describe, you know, that uh, it, it's clear that in the modern period you have people like uh, Freud and 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 that the people the the primary concern in both religion and outside of religion uh, suddenly becomes science and science is the model the idea of progress uh, you know, everybody's picturing the the uh, modern and the Enlightenment as a kind of inevitable progress. And religion then, and belief in God as a kind of immature phase 
in uh, the human development and that we've now passed beyond that kind of immaturity. Yes, yeah, because of course the Enlightenment was an enlightenment over and against the the darkness of the Middle Middle Ages, but that's just a perceived darkness is what people have begun to realize that um, while there were certainly evils in the world and things that weren't as good as maybe they should have been, it's not as if the entire age was a dark age. Um, and it's not as if the Enlightenment really brings any resolution to a lot of those evils. And that sort of hits everybody really hard in the face when you get to the 20th century and have two world wars and a Holocaust and many other genocides as well. The idea of progress, uh, uh, in fact, uh, is turns out, I think, in most people's understanding, I'm never quite sure if everybody has caught on, uh, it didn't work out real well, and what we have unleashed in a Kierkegaardian understanding, and, and I think even in what Milbank and the radical Orthodox guys are picturing, is that there is an unleashing of uh, uh, an, a, a nihilism, a darkness. Maybe if we would put it in the terms of Taylor, that we've passed then into a kind of imminent uh, frame of reference Hmm. Uh, both for believers and non-believers. I mean, for, for non-believers, it's easier to describe. They just got mm-hmm. rid of the transcendent. But I think what Milbank would say, you know, with the secular, the presumption that, you, that this imminent frame will, in fact, uh, it, it is a functional reality in hard terms of science or of the social sciences, and this is his big book, uh, is a is a kind of misunderstanding that at the heart of sociology or psychology or philosophy, there is an inherent nihilism that has already shown itself in the death-dealing nature of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with that. I think Milbank is pointing out that um, where we've arrived isn't... And, necessarily an untheological place, but it's a place that we've arrived at through a particular type of theology. Of course, his answer to that is that theology should be uh, the queen of the sciences, and we're going to only overcome these obstacles with theological problem, uh, theological answers to these problems, which is true in part, but I'm not for sure that that's the most beneficial way of conceiving our response to uh, the secular age that Charles Taylor is describing. So that it would definitely be true as we're talking about human beings reaching our ultimate end and God having a relationship with God, that theology is the place where we're going to go to get those answers. But what I think gets overlooked by the radical orthodoxy approach is that some of there have been true advances in other fields, and there have been true advances through the Enlightenment, and there have been true advances even in the 20th century. Those advances just aren't without their own problems, but we should be able to come up with a, a way of a hermeneutic for looking at what's good and what's bad, what perhaps secularization has done um, that has maybe even promoted 
the cause of theology for helping humans reach their final end, but then also being able to be very critical and say, well, if you want to be a secularist or if you think you can imagine that there is no space for religion or that there is no sacred and you wind up with a complete nihilistic uh, materialism, then of course uh, we would want to say that's not only not the case historically that um, that's not something that has ever existed, but it is a, an imagined reality, um, but also to be able to provide an answer to that. And you seem to be uh, cluing in, I'm not, and I'm not disagreeing, that part of the problem with Milbank and company is that their, their focus seems to be on a kind of critique of modernity, and with this critique of modernity, in other words, tying nihilism, this is what Connor Cunningham has done in his big mm -hmm. book, you know, The Genealogy of Nihilism, is that he looks at all of these, uh, you know, various philosophical frames of reference and shows how they're actually grounded in, in nihilism. But both he and Milbank then seem to be presuming that if one could go back to the Middle Ages, that one escapes that inherent nihilism. Yes, which I don't think is actually what the radical orthodoxy people are um, saying, is that it is simply a, a looking backwards that's a resource mob that's going to be able to overcome the ills of modernity. But there does seem to be a deficiency uh, in their language to be able to talk about these problems or evil as a problem, sin as a problem that isn't directly linked to those philosophies that both lead to modernity and are a part of modernity. That they seem to, in other words, what they're, they're good at is locating the culturally specific uh, problems of the modern. Uh, but, uh, not necessarily, and this this was, um, you know, Connor Cunningham was my advisor, and I, I did my work on Slavoj Žižek. And Žižek is just a prime example of the kind of thing that, that Cunningham is describing. That is, that the guy is, for all practical purposes, he wouldn't self-identify this way, but his picture is one in which uh, the human psyche and by extension, human the human project is built upon a uh, a primordial lie, a necessary lie. That even to call it a lie is doesn't quite get it because it's not as if there is something other than this. There is only this kind of fabrication in which human personality arises. And uh, that all, the best that we can do is kind of is to to manipulate this. So there is this very, you know, I, I would I would say that that Zizek is really a kind of a, a, a nihilist, but a, a nihilist who, in 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 a sense, is working at, at the best he can with what he has. Mm -hmm. And so Cunningham, you know, uh, recognizes this role, but what. They, uh, the, or at least, and I'm never quite sure with any of them if if uh, they can broaden this out to say, well, it's not just uh, the nihilism of modernity that has created this space that we call the secular, but in fact there is allowed for in creation itself this possibility of the evil, of this kind of of what Zizek is going to call radical evil. 
you know, they're they're going to talk about privation theory, and of course, in the end, I want to agree with their picture of evil, but what they seem not to allow for, and I think what you're going to say about Doran and Gerard, is that uh, they can fill in the space here. That is, that there is this neutral ground that's not just a product of modernity, but with Gerard, what we could say is, no, this is this has uh, been allowed for, uh, and I don't know if I'll uh, state it differently, uh, maybe allowed for is the wrong term, but the idea of the existence of this ground in which the evil would arise is inherent to uh, uh, the, the human predicament. Yes, yeah, so the, what I would rephrase is that it's not the neutral ground isn't really a, uh, necessarily a thing. That is the myth that's identified. But there is and has always been a relation of a secularizing tendency with a sacralizing tendency. And those often um, work in a way that is violent and destructive. And I think that's Gerard's point. So it's not just in modernity where you get people wanting to be uh, secular in a way that causes violence and evil. But just look at the time period that Jesus himself lived. And what happens there is you have the sacred authorities willing to work with the authorities who are claiming to be secular, at least in reference to the Jews. You know, Pilate over and over is making sure people know he doesn't really have uh, any issue with Jesus's claim because he's not a Jew and it doesn't, you know, why would the problems of the Jews matter to the Romans? In other words, but the Jews or the sacred is misdirected or um, the Jews misunderstand their sacred mission in such a way that they work with the secular powers as they see them in such a way that they kill the son of God. And so let's do a bit of Gerard here. I think that, you know, what, and maybe even this is a reading of early Genesis. You know, when when uh, uh, we have the fall of man, uh, that the immediate subsequent result is a, 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 a murderous generation, you know, that the generation of Noah. They seem to be psychopathic killers. So much so that apparently there is something that is irredeemable about them. And uh, we have then the, the Tower of Babel and the uh, idolatrous religion uh, appears only after the Tower of Babel. What Rene Girard would come in and, and say is that with the development of uh, sacrifice and myth that I would connect with, any kind of idolatrous religion, that in fact that what you have is the passage from a chaotic, you know, be kill or be killed society in which there is a, uh, uh, that violence is under control in a kind of evil way and not a good way, but at least it's less evil than complete chaotic, psychopathic, you know, murderous yeah. uh, situation. So that uh, a desire for the sacred ends up limiting violence, even though it's not, um, it's, you know, it's certainly not the sacred as it's going to be fully revealed in Christ. 
That so is, whatever you have, yeah. is it a good? Yes, it's a good. Is it a good that may even participate uh, in God's goodness? I, I'm sure it does in some way, but it's not the answer. And I think that's what you're getting. You can say that clearly with Rene Girard. Well, Girard, uh, you know, Girard's point is that that uh, the scapegoat, in other words, he's accounting for the, the scapegoat in terms of uh, uh, mimetic desire and the idea of desire gone wrong. And in this, I think we need to say, well, no, it's not good that there is the real possibility for evil. And I'm never quite sure where Lonergan and company fall in this. Because what you have with Gerard is that mimetic uh, desire is actually a desire that if we uh, imagine that it is simply a learned desire is inevitably, in other words, because of you know the idea of uh, the competition that where people triangulate on a singular object and they're both desiring that object, uh, and it's a zero-sum game, as he posits it, that you necessarily are give it necessarily gives rise to violence, and the only way to control that violence in which mimetic desire reigns is in and through the scapegoating mechanism. That is, that the culture or this the little society or tribe will focus upon a, a singular object of you know, to be sacrificed. Now, I, I don't think that's good in any sense, but it is a delimitation of the evil. And that's what I think we have to identify as a good, that the mythic consciousness of the tribe, whatever begins to form a notion of the sacred in their mind, this myth that uh, they begin to employ limits violence, not that it's the good in, in of itself, but it is at least better than the just complete violence that they have just overcome. And it's also Gerard's point that it's through that system that Jesus himself will actually undo the system of scapegoating and transform it in, in you know into Christian religion or something other than uh, that myth, that mythic consciousness that's there and the sacrifices. So that and and I you know again I don't want to uh, I think we can talk about Gerard um, and this is what my one of my students Ryan Hemmer has written a paper on that it's not that Gerard is omnicompetent uh, to account for everything. But to say that he's not omnicompetent, that is, is not to dismiss what he's done. But what he's done, and what, what I'm getting at here is, I don't think we want to use uh, the René Gerard's scapegoating mechanism as an exhaustive explanation for the person and work of Christ. But, no, that's correct, yeah. But it is a, an insight into this, in other words, Christ is defeating evil. Christ is overcoming evil. And I think in and through the work of Rene Girard that Christ, you know, is then exposing myth. He's uh, exposing the scapegoating mechanism, mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry. Uh, and in that we have a, a, a clear picture then of how Christ defeats evil, 
But is that the end of the story, or is that... Uh, and I think this is uh, uh, Robert Doran's point, am I not correct? Well, it's his point with Lonergan. So he's, in taking Gerard and Lonergan together, he has said that Gerard explains to us the sacralizations that are to be dropped, which would be uh, the system of sacrifice that's bringing these tribes together, and also the secularizations to be resisted, which would be an account of what happens when the religious authorities work with um, the Roman officials or the secular authorities in the event that Jesus is murdered. So that the scapegoating mechanism, in other words, as it's fully developed and played out in the life of Christ, is what is dropped. But what Doran is seeing in Lonergan is that in the same way there are sacralizations to be fostered and secularizations to be welcomed. And that's what he's going to gain from Lonergan. And what this is, what he's describing there is how human evil or these moral evils that um, Gerard is accounting for with mimetic desire, with a desire that ends up turning into violence and then isn't overcome by the sacred because of the way that's played out in human understandings, is actually transformed by what the cross is revealing. So whereas in whereas Gerard's view, the cross is sort of negating the scapegoating mechanism so that it ceases with the cross in the fact that it's revealing that. Lonergan is saying it, well, it's also pointing towards the law of the cross, which is that you would return evil with good. So a, a literal overcoming of violence with the goodness of God, because that's something that's to be realized in the cross. So that's a, a sacred way of life that is picked up in the cross. It's not simply that we're getting rid of uh, the type of mythic sacralization that was that Gerard traces in other world religions and also in uh, the Old Testament. Maybe this plays in, you know, Jesus describes when the, uh, the, the one, one demon is driven out that it will be replaced by, you know, a, a host, a legion of demons. And uh, this is the idea that that uh, the there uh, and and you know the idea of a of a neutral personality or the idea of uh, of a even a, the idea of human personality devoid of God. Mm-hmm. First, you know, it, I think that that part of what's happening in the secular is the presumption of the sufficiency in some way, not just of the imminent frame of reference uh, in a broad sense, but an imminent frame of reference in regard to our own functioning. That is, that we're kind of pictured as, uh, you know, these uh, uh, self-sufficient. And and if we add God into that, well, all the better. But actually what we're describing then is that in the absence of God, there is not some neutral space, but in fact mm-hmm. there is this negation, a nihilistic thing. So what has been displaced is a positive thing, a fullness, a pleroma. And when that is displaced, what you get is not simply neutral, but in fact is, uh, in Zizek's terms, death drive. Uh, it it is jouissance. It's pure desire gone bad. Uh, you know, it's not just that there's a, a kind of neutral desire. And I, I, I sometimes 
and I think you will correct me and say I'm wrong, but this is, is my initial perception in some Catholic thought, is that the idea that desire is in some way always a good thing. It's just, uh, and, and what I, I think you get in Zizek, and especially Zizek from a Christian frame of reference, is that, no, actually there's jouissance, there's pure evil, there is the willing of the evil. Well, I mean, as Christians, I would hope we would say that we're not going to, we can't will evil as if it's an actual thing. So um, what I think that is a true account of the Catholic notion of desire is that desire is ultimately founded in the relationship that we have towards God because we are his creation, because we live in creation, because we live in a world that's saturated by grace. When we desire, we have the ability to desire or that function because we should be desiring God. But what happens is that becomes misdirected so that we would desire other lesser goods. But when you desire a lesser good completely, there's an evil or a, you know, a moral human evil that accompanies that that is actually greater than the desire, and so it negates that desire. And so that's why it would look like, or that's why um, somebody without a Christian metaphysics would perceive that as being pure evil, because it would be, uh, it would look like sadism. In other words, it does look like sadism, that when desiring a good, evil is done. And so it's a, it's really a description of a misdirection of desire. So when you your desire, which should be oriented to God, and when and that is the true end of what it means to be human, is misdirected. What we end up desiring, even though, in uh, at least in some part, is still a good. So for example, uh, the sadist. The sadist may want to hurt somebody, but they do it for their pleasure. Well, pleasure has some good to it. Uh, the idea, the human concept of pleasure that we have in some way would correlate um, to a, a good thing, but is negated and way overcome by the evil of the fact that you're doing evil to another human being. And so what um, Doran is seeing in Lonergan and Girard is a move to be able to transform that type of desire into a desire for God through what Jesus is manifesting on the cross so that there's a real transformation in the human subject. And so that the human subject then oriented towards the supreme good is oriented to uh, longing or desiring to be in a community where God is communicating himself as Trinity to us and we live reconciled with humanity. So that there's two views of uh, evil here, and this is the way you know Milbank begins his. Uh, which is it? Uh, which one is being it? reconciled? Being reconciled. That he contrasts privation theory with the notion of radical evil, and of course, in the end, I, I, I you know, at an ontological level, I think we we as Christians have to believe that privation theory is the case that is that the the evil or the uh, is always a parasite on the good that evil desire is simply a, a desire gone wrong on the other hand i think that what he misses in someone like zizek is the kind is the idea that e radical evil is a construct 
that is a real possibility in human personality, not as an ontological reality, but as a lived reality within, in other words, that's all Zizek is, well, I mean, for him, it, it, it is an ontology, but, but the important thing is that uh, it is, a, a, he's describing it from a psychoanalytic perspective the the idea that radical evil is a true lie in other words it's a it's a falsehood but it's a falsehood that we can actually enter into and live as if it's the case did any of that i don't know if that's yeah i know you know what i'm saying maybe you can say it well better. okay so let's think of it in a biblical and biblical language john uses the categories of light and darkness so, and what he means by that is there is a cosmos of darkness. There's an ordered whole that is darkness, and people can live in that and um, can find the meaning and the purpose of their lives in that. But ultimately, that is not to have life at all. That's to miss the entire point. And so what Christ is doing and what God has been doing through time is to shine light into that darkness. And the only thing that it, it's not as if the um, the light is not contingent upon the darkness god is light it's just to awaken humans to realizing that god is this light that is the life of men john says in the, uh, the prologue to the gospel there so that jesus is affecting a real world transformation of what some have perceived as being darkness or a world without god as paul says in ephesians chapter 2 but the trick to understanding that is that all along creation and uh, human beings are really a part of that world that is truly created by God or are, are a part of the light. So it is a misdirection. It's it's to will the absence of God. And so why that, I think, manifests in desire is because we have the capacity for desire in such a strong way because it is supposed to be oriented to God. But when it's not oriented to God, that capacity marks a sort of negative space. And that negative space is evil, and um, the ability for humans to will this negativity or this this absence that is described in the gospel as darkness. So that here you get the actually it's interesting you get the language of cosmos in John, and of course what he's talking about is two different worlds. There is the cosmos of darkness that I presume is not a reality. It's, not, it's a world constituted by human beings. You can live in that cosmos as if it is the case. It's sort of the matrix, you know. You can live in the matrix as if there is nothing outside of it. But the significance of the light penetrating the darkness is to, in fact, uh, expose the falsehood of that frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, which is, and so this is why it's so important to realize what I think Father Doran's doing with Gerard and Lonergan, is Gerard is is marking uh, the fact that this is a lie. So the need to scapegoat, that's, that's not really the way the world works, and Jesus reveals that this is the way human beings have worked against each other um, from time immemorial, and it's very violent. But what he's also marking with Lonergan is that God uses that very method to point to the truth, which is for him the law of the cross, which manifests the love of God, that 
Jesus or God doesn't overcome sin and human evil by power, which is what you get in systems like penal substitution. But he overcomes that by transforming the very means that we would use uh, to evil ends for the good, which is ultimately the good of the community, to have this community with God, true reconciliation. And so the significance of Dorn is that he acknowledges uh, the possibility of this evil uh, existing. Uh, and and I think also, and maybe that they're all on board here, is that what Christ is doing is overcoming the evil, and maybe they're uh, uh, going beyond Gerard. I'm never quite sure if Gerard, uh, I'm assuming as a Catholic, he, he does go beyond his own theory, but I'm not sure that it becomes clear in his theory how he does what you just said, that he gives us the law of the cross. Maybe, maybe uh, I'm wrong here that, in fact, in late Gerard, he comes to this understanding. Well, Gerard doesn't give us the law of the cross. That's Lonergan. So uh, I think that would be the point of saying, well, we shouldn't blame Gerard for not doing everything. Uh, but here is the other half that would make sense of what Gerard's theory is working towards. So that you have the de- real-world defeat of evil, uh, and you have it not just that, it's just not penal, you know, in other words, penal substitution seems to be playing into a Girardian frame of reference, that is, that it actually makes God out to be an evil despot and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. He's just one more uh, pagan deity. Uh, but anyway, you have that whole frame of reference, that whole economy exposed, but the the significance is what you have put in place then is is going beyond simply a wiping out of sin and a defeat of evil and uh, uh, another economy, uh, the law of the cross, that is a laying down your life, agape love, uh, as uh, demonstrated in cro- the cross of Christ and our taking up that cross, as the gift-giving economy that put, is put in its place. Yes. So, um, in the way this would relate back to Taylor's work, as Taylor is giving us this wonderful description of secularization and the advent of people thinking that you actually can live in a secular world. Milbank provides a critique, not of Taylor, but a critique of those who think they can actually be secularist and live in that world. But what to go a step further and to say, well, how, what, what, how do we address this problem other than just saying, well, that's a myth or uh, to be a secularist is a myth that the world is actually secular is a myth at the same time to accept Taylor's thesis that um, there has been a secularizing tendency is to be able to key in on uh, the power of both of those arguments and realize that humans do have secularizing tendencies and those can either be good or bad. Humans do have sacralizing tendencies, but those can also be good or bad. Um, So, for example, any conception of the sacred that might lead you to sacrifice human beings uh, would obviously be an evil. But you could use Gerard's work to say, uh, well, and actually, I, you know, this is sort of what Gerard says, because this is what Jesus says. Uh, while you think that in the Old Testament, the sacrifices are of these bulls and uh, goats every year, um, 
they've also been sacrificing the prophets. And the sacrifices of the prophets and then the sacralizing of the dead prophets has what has been kept um, Israelite Judaism alive and well for hundreds of years. And Jesus says, yeah, and you're about to do that to me. Um, And so it's Jesus pointing that out and being an instance of that that ends up negating that whole process. But that's not to say that we shouldn't have a sacred, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have a secularization of some things. And so Lonergan's work is pointing towards that, that the sacred is this idea, uh, this law of the cross, the love of God, this community that it has us in participation and communion with a Trinitarian God. But the secular is to say that we don't use uh, religion to justify violence. We don't use religion to justify the building up of states or to ensure um, national states their existence. And so that secularizing tendency is a, is a good thing in that sense. Let me, let me try something on you and uh, see if it... In other words, what we tend to do is sacralize death. That in the scapegoating mechanism that we imagine that in sacrificing, that in fact we've, in feeding the gods or whatever that's, that's pictured as, in, in, uh, that we make death then, the graveyard, the tombs, you know, this is the Old Testament picture, that what would displace God is the religions of death, the covenant with death. What in the Genesis chapter 3, you know, what they displace the tree of life with is actually the lie, you won't die. It's actually a making death the sacred. And I think that we could in some way, in other words, this is what's happening psychoanalytically uh, with uh, Gerard, or with uh, the idea of the death drive, you know, uh, Zizek and Lacan's reading of uh, masochism, that the tripartite, structure that is really a description of our participation in the trinity you know there's god the father well what happens in mm-hmm. in lacan is the father is the symbolic the father is in paul the law there is uh the uh holy spirit but actually what you get in uh lacan and 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 Zizek, uh is that uh, this is the death drive. This is the impetus. This is the what animates a person is not life, but uh, death itself. And then there is the Son, Christ, which in its displacement is the ego, the imago, the image. And so you can describe then uh, the, the two uh, pictures of God and the human being created in the image of God, one is life-giving, one is life. The other is, in fact, empty. There's nothing there, but it is a dynamic, but it's a dynamic of death that gets taken up into human religion, and death then becomes the animating force, so that the sacred... Uh, is, in fact, the complete reversal of the life-giving faith that you have in Christianity. 
Yes. So that that is so. I think what is being described in Gerard and uh, Lonergan is that uh, you haven't abolished one structure for the other, but you have transformed these categories and um, into a Christian subject. And then to take that a step further is to say that you have desacralized what should have never been made sacred, and that's um, human universal laws or, or the way that you uh, – I'm trying to – I don't want to get into this because it's so hard to explain, um, but your work on Romans chapter 7. So any, any sacralizing of the law – in such a way that where God is law, the lawgiver that you can never please, and that's the foundation of your religion is perverse. So that needs to be secularized. Is there a place for laws in our world? Yes, but it's a secular place. Because the law that we have in Christ is the law of the spirit of life. It's the law of love. It's the law of self-sacrifice. It has its roots in the atonement. And so we have made a shift then in saying some things need to be sacred, some things need to be secularized, and that's what I think is being described then uh, in holding Lonergan's work and Gerard's work together. Does that make sense? <laughs> the, the, let me, uh, the, the, my second point that you just made, let me state it in a different way, that where we do not want to sacralize death, we do want to secularize it. Yes, secularize death and sacralize eternal life. And what that means is all that goes with death, which is, in other words, the force of the law, violence, uh, the force of government, the, mm -hmm. the power of kings. None of this is sacred. This is all secular. It all is in the realm of violence and death and has nothing to do with the religion of life. Yes, as Christians, we, we have to live in a world that may be, in fact, controlled by the secular. And I think that's the reality that we've come into in modernity. Where you, I think the misperception in the, in the medieval period that Milbank and others may not be getting, uh, and what you're saying about Taylor, and you're going and saying, no, actually there is the secularization and the recognizing of the secular is is a recognizing perhaps uh you know that we live between the times that we inhabit uh the new jerusalem but we inhabit the new jerusalem in you know the city of god while we still exist in the city of man mm. yes yeah and so i think the point of our conversation is to say uh yes to taylor's work as a wonderful description of this but to say any kind of uh as Christians, what's the work to be done practically, if this is the case, is more complicated than simply saying, oh, the secular is bad and we need to resacralize everything. Uh, that actually we can even look back to the example of Jesus' own life and his death and resurrection uh, and what that's saying to evil and what that's saying about the way the sacred and the secular function in his own life and saying that as humans, then the task, as well as Christians, then the task is to be able to follow Christ in a world that is not yet uh, the fully manifest kingdom of God, though we participate fully in that kingdom and in that community. So to try to, in other words, to... to 
the synonymous thing with sacralizing death is to have a imagine that the king uh, or the president or the that this in fact that you know to put it in immediate terms that uh, America is a Christian nation. Yes. So I mean, every, everybody wants their nation to be a, well, not anymore. But at one time, you know, everybody wanted their nation to be a Christian nation. But to, to do that, then you have uh, religion being involved in slavery and in violence and in wars and colonialization, imperialism. Uh, it, and it's just a misconstrual of what Christianity is supposed to be doing for us. It's supposed to be transforming us into people that don't do those things, not being used as a support so that those things continue to function in society. And where we cannot separate out the sacred and the secular, where we sacralize death, we've turned the divine into the demonic, and we are worshiping false gods and idols. Yes. You said that hesitantly. <laughs> no, I was saying like, yes, that's a good point to end on. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think we, in other words, this is the significance, I think, of the Trump era that modern evangelicalism mixed in with racism and, and uh, you know, white supremacy and the KKK, that they are sacralizing what, you know, it, 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 that they've turned uh, the demonic religion that would sacralize death into Christianity, and in the process they've displaced the, the true sacred, uh, which is the city of God, the kingdom of God, and life from Yeah, and that is why this conversation is so pertinent, and really always pertinent, because this is this is the problem that... Uh, back to your point about desire, when desire is misdirected, this is what happens. So this is the conversation that we have uh, to reorient people towards that community that is a participation in God. I don't feel like I let you say your point strongly enough, though, between the connection between Gerard and Lonergan. And the, say that one more time. Uh, well, just the point that Gerard is uh, pointing towards uh, places in uh, where in which we need to be desacralizing and um, desacralizing. Uh, here, I'll, I'll come back up to the quote that I was using. Uh, Gerard is uh, giving us sacralizations to be fostered and secularizations to be uh, welcomed uh, in terms, th th that's what's drawn from Lonergan. Gerard is giving us an, a negative of that, which is those sacralizations and secularizations that are to be re resisted. And um, so that I think that's just a way of putting their work together. Gerard is pointing towards how um, a mis-sacralization has affected humanity and he, that almost stands in for sin for him in his theory is that's what Jesus is overcoming. And that's okay if what we realize is that the point of overcoming that isn't just that it would be overcome, but actually that we would have the true sacred of a, a relationship with God, uh, one on the order of theosis or deification, becoming like God. And I, I, I don't mean in any way to... I hope we haven't 
said something true here about Milbank, which, uh, you know, that he obviously has the categories, the Augustinian categories, the city of man and the city of God. Uh, but I'm never quite sure how he sorts those things out, that he, uh, that, in other words, being an Anglican or Anglo-Catholic, Connor Cunningham being Catholic, uh, and in, in the situation in England, it's almost like they can't sort out uh, how it is that these two realms are in fact to be, in some way, the, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, uh, that there is an opposition, an inherent opposition in these two realms. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. And so, I mean, I think Milbank is doing a great work, and he's saying that the way we engage... Uh, people that have the idea that there is a secular is to point out that that's a myth and to run this down the short history of which is basically the history of modernity, but to simply say that's a symptom of the larger problem. I guess the next point that, and the next podcast, well, we got one more and it is to then what we need to begin to describe. We've described the situation in which uh, we've got the secularization uh, which is not a in and of itself is not an, an inherently bad thing, uh, but that we need to begin to describe how we move on in theology from here. Am I right in this? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So that we do, uh, as far as we're concerned, we're theologians, and so we can come up with a theological answer of how what is, or we can at least describe what the theological answer is. And uh, so the post postmodern theology or post-liberal theology, maybe it, 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 uh, we cannot be presumptuous in this shuffling aside uh, the Enlightenment and modernity and the, the, the world that this has fostered, but it, it really has brought us to a different place and it's from this different place that we begin to, that, that uh, theology has to take account of things. Yes, I think that's right. Tell me what, we've got uh, two more, John, describe the next two podcasts. <laughs> um, I think that what we have planned is both uh, talking about the theological responses to uh, modernity and this idea of the secular, which are confessional theologies, post-liberalism, radical orthodoxy, and uh, the Catholic Nouvelle theologies and other Catholic theologians. And then uh, just wrapping up the series of podcasts with a conclusion that hopefully will bring everything together. Uh, it sounds wonderful. I, I uh, Yeah, this one, uh, I think of the, the ones we're doing, I think it uh, may have been the most complicated uh, in, in uh, getting a handle on Taylor and Milbank's significance of their work, but the space that, uh, that, that it really is laying the ground for.